Welcome to The Emily Osmond Show. I'm your host, Emily Osmond, an online marketing educator, leader of an incredible global community of female entrepreneurs and a content creator based in Melbourne, Australia. This show is designed to bring you practical strategies and candid real stories of entrepreneurs to help you make marketing, mindset and money your superpowers. Let's get into the show. Welcome back to the show. Today, I'm joined by the absolute delight that is Sarah Davidson, an entrepreneur, author, and podcaster who began her working life as a mergers and acquisitions lawyer at a leading international law firm. While Sarah enjoyed several years building strong professional foundations, she found it increasingly challenging to reconcile the all-consuming corporate lifestyle with her personal passions for health, well-being, creativity, and adventure. In pursuit of balance, Sarah and her partner started Matcha Maiden, closing a gap they discovered in the health food market for matcha green tea powder. And in 2016, the Matcha Mission developed into a physical venue and cutting edge cafe, Matcha Milk Bar. Today, Sarah hosts the podcast Seize the Yay, which investigates the difference between success and happiness the importance of cultivating joy, and showcases the down-to-earth human side of her diverse and esteemed guests. In September 2020, Sarah published her book, Seize the Yay, detailing the transformative opportunity in discomfort, resilience through adversity, and clearing the slate to rebuild a yay-filled life. In this episode, we discuss the highs and lows that come for many of us with the entrepreneurial adventure. Sarah shares her experience with comparison and how this can intensify and wane over time, how things can kind of spiral sometimes with negative feedback and how she's resolved this, when things don't go to plan and really how it's about how we deal with these times that makes the difference. Balancing her desire to prepare with taking action and also living with anxiety and the learnings that come from this. So now, allow me to introduce you to Sarah Davidson. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure. Look at your smile. It just makes me happy just looking at you. (laughs) (laughs) Yours true. Yours true. And I'm excited, actually, we didn't even say, to be speaking alongside you next week in one week's time. I know. At a real event. (laughs) In the flesh. I feel like this is such good timing. It's so funny how things work out that I think everything just keeps getting delayed. And then these two things ended up like, a week apart. I'm like, this is weird. I know. But amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Meant to be. It's going to be fun. Real, real life events. So that will be fab. I've forgotten how to converse with people though. So I feel like I'll be such an awkward turtle. I'll either be too intense and just be hugging everyone, like too much touching, or I'll be the opposite. And I'll be like, oh God, too many people. <laughs> I know, right. I Sometimes I have to kind of almost apologize with, with this lockdown, working from home. I'm like by myself all day. And then when I see people, I, I kind of, I'm like, oh crap, like maybe I should explain that. I just haven't seen anyone else all day. So I'm so <laughs> excited. <laughs> the lady at the post office. <laughs> I'm a hugger as well. So yeah. I found not being able to just hug people. Like I know it sounds really silly and like a little bit pervy, but I kind of felt like my love language <laughs> is physical touch. Like that's a big part of how I 
say hello and like show people that I, I've missed them and not being able to do that. I was like, I felt like I was being rude to everyone by not hugging them, even though I was actually just being normal <laughs> by not like that would be, assaulting that would everyone be when I see them. <laughs> oh, that would be hard. I've been reading your book, Seize the Yay. It's just so wonderful. And it's really reassuring too, to know that you can have such great success and also have struggles and failures and anxiety and uncertainty and self-questioning. So first of all, like I just acknowledge you for being you and sharing so, so openly and without ego. Oh, thank you so much. That's so kind. I still feel because the book came out during stage four in Melbourne, so no bookstores were open. I couldn't see it in the flesh until maybe four months later, which was only now kind of four months ago. I still feel like my mum printed it out at Officeworks and has just been giving it to people. <laughs> so when I saw you holding it, I was like, oh, mum gave that to you. Like, it's not a real oh. book. <laughs> I bought this online. It shipped to me. It was super exciting. Oh, my yeah. gosh. So it's, it's so good. And like I was showing, I love to highlight. So I've got lots of highlighting. And so much, so much to just discuss with you and ask you about. So maybe we'll kick it off. And I would love you to set the scene, first of all, with... What is the Seize the Yay philosophy? How can you explain that? <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm very bad at short answers. So this could take up the entire podcast, me trying to explain it's, myself. I know, it really could. <laughs> Each of these things I've written down, I'm like, we could do a whole podcast on this. <laughs> <laughs> so it it started with, I mean, if you've heard the story, I sort of started off in a very conventional career path that was in law. I was a mergers and acquisitions lawyer in my first career. And it was very much a certainty-based, risk-averse, success-focused, like I had a 50-year plan, not just a five or 10-year plan. It was so clear what the structure was, what the hierarchy was, which at the time I actually thought suited me. And I was never one of those corporates who was desperately unhappy and was try, you know, fighting to find a reason to get out. But I actually think that's scarier because now I sort of think if you're really unhappy, you'll make a change. Inevitably, it will get too much and one day you'll go, this discomfort is just ridiculous. I'm going to make a change. If you're fine, you can last in fine for a very long time. And particularly if you're, you know, focused on gratitude and having a job that's stable. I graduated in the GFC. I was like, I'm a lawyer. This is so fancy. Like I wasn't even looking for anything else. So I didn't realize that when you look back at my childhood, I've always been very nerdy, but I've always been super arty farty at the other end of the spectrum. I'm like a bipolar person with just two totally different personalities all smushed into one. And by choosing things that were outwardly successful, that had financial metrics to measure how, you know, how successful I appeared objectively. And by being really gratified by that prestige and being busy all the time and feeling like I was achieving because I was climbing a ladder, I let the dominant side of my personality just kind of disappear. All of uni, all of school, you could do both. You could do your academics and you could do extracurricular activities. In a law firm, you can't do that. So I had no idea that I'd lost the thing that makes me sparkle. And it was only a very happy accident, which you can read in the book. I, I ended up in Africa of all places, got very sick. And that created the, the basis for a whole reevaluation of what I was doing. Still not enough to realize until I got banned from coffee, discovered matcha powder as a 
really not even a business opportunity, like purely just to fulfill my own selfish need for matcha because (laughs) I'd become hooked on this healthier caffeine. We started a business, my husband and I, and it was only through that that I saw myself who I'd always known but had lost. She came back again and I was like, when did I let that part of me die like without even realizing and by contrast I realized I'd just been settling in good and missing out on great and so in that whole big life transition I learned to get rid of old thinking patterns that were avoid risk at all costs and embrace risk is great what's the worst that can happen always just give things a go and completely rewired what I thought was my ingrained personality, but was able to change my thinking patterns completely. And then suddenly the world started opening up to me again. And I was like, what if all of it is just about finding what what lights you up and putting joy first? It doesn't mean that success and money and, you know, we all have basic needs and obligations and rent and debt and all those kinds of things. But maybe if we put joy a little bit higher up the hierarchy of needs, everything else would fall into place better because you wouldn't be pushing against unhappiness or dissatisfaction all the time. So Seize the Yay came about when I realized I was seizing the day by trying to grab every opportunity, which is not a bad thing in and of itself. But when you're saying yes to everything and going so damn fast, but in no direction, I was just on the spot. I was just busy on the spot towards nothing that I really cared about. So I thought if I swap it to seize the yay, then maybe that will help like shift my fundamental thinking back to does it light a spark? And if it does, then all the other things will follow. You will be able to make your money and make a livelihood out of it. I mean, obviously I'm simplifying it a lot, but just that fundamental shift mentally moving away from success, financial metrics and ticking boxes. I was like a serial resume patter. I did things just because, (laughs) not because they had any big purpose or, or joy for me and moving towards what makes you yay. The other thing is like, it's such a juvenile word. And I'd gone from such a serious career where I, I took myself way too seriously. I was like, I am Meghan Markle all of the time. Oh my God. Who wouldn't want to be? But I had to let go of that. And I was like, by using a childlike word, it makes me remember every time I say it, I laugh. I'm like, oh, CZA, like super childish, but because it's fun and we lose that ability to play and laugh and have that childlike sense of wonder about how beautiful life is when we take ourselves too seriously. So it's equal parts, play, joy, happiness, and the fire in your belly. And you're so right, Sarah, when you say when we're in great discomfort, we often will then look to make a change. And so when when things are okay and things are fine, it's so sad and can be so dangerous because that stops us from looking for what could be better. And so to actually really be honest with ourselves and forget about what is what is kind of like the norm to do because you you ticked all the boxes you were in your corporate career you were on your way to climbing the ladder but for you to notice and it was the same thing as me I had a great job it was a great pay for what I was like a 23 year old or something the work was great but there was just something missing for me and to recognize that and then to explore that it can bring so much yay so much fulfillment Also with that can come overwhelm and you wrote about this just so well and broke it down so well in your book. We then can start to look at the big picture and the big vision, but then get stuck in overwhelm about how to get there. So how do you, because you've created such a great brand with Matcha Maiden and now your podcast, which is, I 
I'm a big fan. You've had incredible guests on there. Gary V. <laughs> incredible. Oh my God. Yes. Still, I'm like, like what, what a dream. Hell? Did that really happen? <laughs> incredible. What's your advice to people that are like, I want to do what Sarah's done, but they're not taking action because they're just feeling overwhelmed? Oh, that is such a good question. And it's the one that's probably fascinated me the most over the past few years, particularly in the podcast and speaking to people who seem to have achieved the impossible or the unfathomable. And I always used to have, like, particularly when I first moved out of corporate and into business, I felt like the pressure of this dream big mentality. Like, you know, if your dreams don't scare you, they're not big enough. And all these, like, I love quotes. Quotes like that (laughs) would kind of get me like, oh, I have to dream into the impossible. But I've realized that, I mean, that's really, you always have to dream beyond your current situation so that you're moving forward and so that you're conceptualizing what your next chapter or your next couple of chapters could look like. But you're right, sometimes you dream so big that it paralyzes you, like that paralysis because you're, you're fearful, you don't know where to start. It seems like people have this overnight success jump into you know incredible heights and successes, but really when you break it down, and this the podcast has helped me with this enormously, when you go back to people's very first step, they never make a big jump. They make lots of little big jumps. Like they're, they're conceptually big, they're emotionally big, but actually in the scheme of where they get to, no one jumps to the end. They all take tiny little steps of like, well, what's the next immediate thing that I can do? So I realized I get totally paralyzed when I think, oh, like when we first started Matcha Maiden, I would sit because I was so unused to this way of thinking, I would sit and think, okay, dream big. What does that mean? Ship to the US, start an international brand, get into the hands of celebrities and whatever. And then I just sit there and stare at a wall like well how is that going to happen because how am I going to get you know the FDA regulations in the US like I was thinking about all these things that weren't even I didn't have one bag yet to sell to one person so why was I spending a whole day of my life I literally spent a whole day researching how to ship food into the US before we had an Australian shipper like why was I going so many steps too far and I realized and I think I, I only realized that I did this when I wrote it down in the book and gave it a name that it's a dream big but plan small approach. So you write down the big dream, but all you can do is the next immediate thing on the to-do list. And the smaller you make the task, the easier it is to start. So you can't actually do anything until you have a business name. We couldn't sell a single bag until we had a website to sell it on. We couldn't sell any matcha unless we had the matcha. And then once we had it, we had to put it in a bag. Like it is unbelievably simple when you just list what are the next five to 10 things that I have to do before anything else that I'm worrying about even becomes relevant. And once you kind of get the ability to blinker out anything else, and just focus on the immediate next step, it actually becomes like the smallest task because everyone can go online and go how to get an ABN and then fill out the form to do the ABN. You can't do anything else at the same time as that. So then you're like, oh, well, that's not a hard task. And then five minutes later, you've got an ABN. And it's happening. Yeah, and then suddenly you've moved, you've got motion, but you're not like trying to speed to the end. And I realize every hugely successful person has broken down the tasks they've done to those tiny little steps. And the way I kind of think about it is in the Matcha Maiden version, it was what do I need to sell one bag? That's all I focused on. And once I could sell one, I could sell 10. Once you can sell 10, you can probably sell 100. And then it's going to be quite a while before you need to worry about selling 1,000. Same with the podcast. I had no idea about audio, but 
all I focused on was what equipment and skills do I need to have one guest? And then, you know, I might not like it. I might do one guest and then go, I'm not good at podcasting. This is not my jam. I'm not going to do a second guest. So if I've gone and invested $50,000 in getting lessons and audio equipment for a hundred guests, but I never do a hundred, like what was the point of that? So I think immediate next steps, tiny baby steps. And rather than seeing things as like, I need to jump to the, the top of the staircase, think about the million little baby steps that make up that big jump and only focus on the next one. And suddenly it's not overwhelming at all. So true. And this is, I love doing this too. And it's like, okay, what is like the big vision? And then I said, I teach online marketing. I teach business skills. And so I teach my students like, okay, let's look at the year ahead and let's bring that six months ahead. Let's bring that to the next month, what you need to do. And then what's one thing you can do today? Because then you get that momentum. And exactly like you say, I loved how you wrote in the book. All I had to focus on was how I could just sell the one bag to someone that wasn't a family or friend. (laughs) (laughs) And once you did that, awesome, right. Now we can start focusing on the next things rather than spending all all the energy that we have on things we don't even have to worry about just yet. So, so good. Totally. And some of those things that I spent, like when I first went full time, I just had no idea how to deal with my thoughts and structuring the workflow. And I look back to how much time I wasted on stuff that either didn't eventuate till years later or actually never eventuated at all. I'm like, oh my God, I had finite energy back then. And I used it on that, that like how to ship to Afghanistan. Like, why do I need to know that? <laughs> it's not a big market for matcha over in Afghanistan, it turns out. You know what I mean? Like- what? <laughs> but also, like you said, with podcasting, you might not have even enjoyed it. So you got started and you discovered if you enjoyed it or not. I also loved how you wrote about in the book, how sometimes like there are just failures too. And so we can even do the research. We can create something. You use the example of creating something that even some of your customers had been asking for. And even then it might not quite work or might not kind of take off as you thought it would. And sometimes, or a lot of the time, really, it's then how we respond to those moments. Could you talk to us about that? I loved how you wrote about our greatest strength is not really just how we deal with the good times, but how we deal with like the sucky, tough, hard times. (laughs) Absolutely. I think another major like commonality that's come out of the last two years of interviewing people who have had success, but in all different pathways has been their attitude towards failure. Not so much their attitude towards success because drive and determination I mean, we all have flat days, but I think once you find something you really are passionate about, you don't want to stop working. So the motivation piece is not actually as difficult as the bounce back when you do have a setback that makes you think, why am I doing this? Or am I worthy? Or is my product good? Or whatever your offering is. And I think the overarching thing that's helped me is to not really indulge in the idea of failure at all. There are inevitably things that are undoubtedly a failure. There are times where we've had stupid mistakes like you know we insured for marine but it didn't count if like there was a storm and then we lost like you know fifty thousand dollars worth of stock over the side of a boat like that's a failure you know like that's a total screw up but at the same time i think there's a really amazing quote i can't even remember who it's who it's by it's it's almost not even a quote it's so short but i think the options are you either win or you learn there's a word failure in between but really you either things go how you plan. You don't learn much when things go exactly how you plan them because you planned it and it all worked out how you expected, or they don't, which for a minute feels like failure. Either you feel embarrassed or you feel disappointed in yourself or you beat yourself up about it, whatever. But there's always, always a lesson. 
even if the lesson is hypothetical, like, well, yes, we lost $50,000 of stock, but that saved us because I will never make that mistake again. So it could have saved me from losing $500,000 worth of stock in the future. Even if you have to hypotheticalize <laughs> your lesson, there is always one to find. And so I find the quicker you get your brain thinking about the lesson, the quicker you're okay with what happened because you're like, oh, well, you know, this has taught me something that I will never do again, or it has alerted me to a fault in our systems or whatever that now I can improve on. There's always a chance for you to be propelled forward by what feels like a step backward in the moment. It's also like a muscle, like the more you practice that in setback times, the more automatic it becomes. So now, I mean, I obviously have days where I feel like something didn't work or it's not getting the response that I wanted, but I find I, I almost skip the failure chapter now. Like I go, oh, yeah, like that's a bit icky. And oh, like, and I also feel like if I promised you that you could fail and no one knew about it, none of us would be scared of it. I genuinely don't oh think my God, anyone so would care. <laughs> so people talk about fear of failure all the time. I'm like, it's not fear of failure. No one cares about failing because we all know we have limits. People care about failing publicly. So true. It's like the embarrassment, like, oh God, I got it wrong. I'm, I'm like so embarrassed. It's a shame. It's what other people are going to think. Yeah. And it's like either no one is paying attention because we're all so busy with our own crap or they are paying attention and you control the narrative. Like there are so many times where we've been like, wow, we launched this huge product. It didn't work. But you just spin it as we sold out of our five units that we made and we're never doing it again because it was limited edition. No one can tell you how you pitch that. So true. So just spin it how you want to spin it or just laugh and be like, well, that was a you know crappy flavor. So let's do something else. Like it's not a big deal. No one cares. Sarah, it's so powerful that you share this and that you just really like humanize the entrepreneurial experience. And actually you spoke about this, wrote about this in your book around the comparison as well. And to think that everyone else knows what they're doing, what the hell am I doing? And I love that you share, you know, like these things happen and we eventually learn how to kind of deal with them and also how we want to spin it as well, which is totally cool. And we can also just really honestly own it, which is, which is cool too. What role has comparison played for you and how have you managed to lessen its effects? Yeah, that's a great way to word it because it's one of those things that I thought like comparison and self-doubt and even your approach to failure for me are things that kind of go hand in hand in terms of I thought I would grow out of them. Like I moved from a career where I had 10 years of training. I knew exactly like the learning curve was steep, but I had such a clear support network moving into an area where I had no training, no mentor, no like colleagues or any guidebook. And that's hard, isn't it? Because it's like, oh crap, you've lost, this is what I find, you know, you lose your peers, your colleagues that you can just chat with at your level. Yeah. Yeah. Like when self-doubt comes in a career that you're prepared for, you know, you have self-doubt and then you're like, no, I'm qualified for this. When you have (laughs) self-doubt in something you're not qualified for, you're like, I'm still not qualified for this. I'm not even qualified, so I don't even know. (laughs) But that meant that I thought that experience would help that fade because the further I got into it and the further we had objective successes and progress that I would go by the third year or something. You know, I don't know what I thought, but I thought one day it would just, I'd feel confident. But what I've learned is you don't actually necessarily want them to go away because if I didn't have self-doubt or comparison, I would worry that I was complacent. I wasn't invested enough in doing a good job and in learning and improving all the time that I was just like, oh, I'm, I got this. Like, 
I'd worry that I wasn't really trying to grow and evolve. So rather than try to suppress those things, I tried to like appreciate them as a good thing and just lessen the control they have over my decisions. And so again, I think that's like flexing a muscle. It's one of the most amazing things about being a human is that we have metacognition, which is the ability to, we have thoughts about like our senses and what we're seeing, but then we can think about those thoughts, which no other animal can do. So you can look at your negative reaction, self-doubt, comparison, whatever, and go, I see what that is. I totally understand where that's coming from. My rational brain knows it's not based on anything. It's just a reflex. But I can also choose at this junction to either think it's true and either self-select out of the opportunity or think you're not worthy or cancel your business and go back to your job, whatever it is. Or I can go, okay, well, that's protecting me, but I'm going to push through it anyway because if there's a chance it could go wrong, there is always also an equal chance it will go right. Like you can't let yourself indulge in the possibility of failure if you don't indulge in the possibility of success. And so I feel like particularly with things like comparison, that is also never going to go away. We live in an age where the minute details of everyone else's lives, but the only the good bits, are more visible than they have ever been before. We usually would only hear about what people are doing at a dinner party or in the news or... The high school reunions. Yeah, now it's like everyone <laughs> we know has highlights every day and it's in our face, on our phone, like in our intimate life. That feeling is probably never going to go away. And it's also like social comparison isn't a bad thing when you use it for inspiration and motivation, but it definitely tips over into self-destructive negative, like we all spiral down into comparison, whole black holes of death all the time. And I think it's really important to remember, A, you're comparing with only what that person chooses to let you see. Normally, there's stuff under the surface that I love this quote, if everyone put their shit out on the table and you saw what everyone else is dealing with, you'd want your own shit back. You just go, yeah. oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so that helps me always because I'm like, look, that is making me feel inadequate because X is doing Y, but I don't know what's going on behind the scenes. So I'm not even going to tempt fate and wish that I had that. Or you realize that even if you are comparing upwards and thinking, you know, feeling inadequate, that person doesn't care. It doesn't affect them that you're feeling that way. It doesn't affect people underneath you. There'll always be someone doing better and worse than you. And that's the nature of life. We've got so little energy already. Why indulge in worrying about what other people are doing? Because the quality of your day to day, the only person who cares about that is you. And the only person who controls that is you. But I find that when I have moments where I know that I can't talk myself out of that circle, Sometimes you can have a pep talk with yourself and go, it's irrational, like blah, blah, blah. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes it stings more, doesn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. And there'll be moments when you know you're more vulnerable. So I have this strategy of blinkers. I know when I need them. If a horse could see all the other horses, it would run a terrible <laughs> race. So we have actual blinkers. So I think, what are my blinkers? When do I need them? How do I construct them in a way that's helpful? For example, when we were getting married, for years, I've looked at other people's wedding dresses and weddings and love that. I love it. It's so exciting. In the tiny amount of time where we were about to get married, but we couldn't change anything we'd decided, I was like, have to unfollow, mute every Vogue <laughs> brides, like everything, because that was a, like a vulnerable period in that area of my life. And so sometimes you might be feeling a little bit uncomfortable about your body. So you know the accounts that trigger you, like we're pretty self-aware if you really get down to business. Or if you're going through a period where your business is struggling, maybe like the really successful entrepreneurial accounts are not the things that you need to follow. You can mute things and then you can turn them back on again. 
curate your world in a way that helps you get through the feelings that you're having because inevitably one day you'll wake up in a couple of weeks and go, I feel much stronger to protect myself against those feelings. I can refollow. I think we feel like we have no control against, like you might see something pop up and go, oh, I didn't want to see that. Like, how can I control that? You just mute it. You do control it. You do control what you see. And so, yeah, I think preempt how you're feeling and just make some little tweaks in your environment until you feel back to, you know, your strongest self. Yeah. And I love it. You said like a few weeks later, sometimes it's the next day, isn't it? It's like, oh, okay. And yeah, I'm over that now. Yeah. I'm like okay. the day after we got married, I was like, <laughs> the next I want to see everyone else's dresses. Because <laughs> <laughs> then I was in love with my dress again. Like, but the two, three weeks before, like my bridesmaids had to like go take my phone and like block all these accounts. Because I was like, I just chose like a singlet top dress. It's like just a singlet because the straps were really simple, which I loved. Oh, it was gorgeous. I've seen your photos. But I was in such such a spot of bother about the fact that I chose a singlet top silhouette. (laughs) Like it is so far from a singlet top. But I was just like, it's a a freaking singlet top. I hate it. And they were like, what is wrong with you? It's like your dream dress. And then two days later, I was like, I love it so much. Like you just need to know yourself at certain moments of your life. (laughs) Totally. Totally. And speaking of that, Sarah, and knowing ourselves, like sometimes we can be triggered by other people. You wrote in your book around the not so nice podcast review and that kind of triggered some things. And I've had similar experiences when things just trigger me and it's one negative comment or feedback and we need to take on the constructive feedback when it's there, but also just, it can sometimes just trigger us. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's just not very nice. But also something I have in common with you is my own mental health and my anxiety. And that's something that has really been like a big role in my business. I've been working for myself for, I think it's about six years or so. And it's definitely kind of like my partner in my business in terms of how I manage it. And I have my own strategies, but I would love to hear the role that your anxiety has played in your business. You wrote about it in your book so beautifully and openly, and it's something that you share on your social media too. What role does it play in your business adventures and uh, how do you manage it? Yeah, it's such a great question. I think it's so much more prevalent in our generation than it ever has really been before, either because we understand it better or because the pressure and pace of our life is such that more people experience it because we're just We haven't had time to catch up. Our brains haven't had time to catch up with the volume of information that we get from a young age. For me, I have always felt like my brain was my strength. And so looking back now, I can see times when I was younger where I had a panic attack or had a manifestation of anxiety but didn't know it and felt largely unscathed until the sort of 2013 event that sparked the whole matrimony. So that when I got really sick, I burnt out, I ended up with adrenal fatigue and I had never learned really how to pace myself to look after my physical body, but I had definitely never engaged in the idea that my brain had limits. It took me like two years, two or three years to get better physically. And then I thought I was done. I was like, oh yeah, I'm amazing. Like I've got my groove back. Yeah, literally a tick. And because I'd moved into business emotionally, I was feeling so much joy. And I was like, I'm passionate about my job. And I'm like seizing the yay all the time. But I had never learned the accompanying lesson that health is not this two dimensional, like work, rest, work, rest. I'd learned to rest. And this is where the idea of play TA has come about because I'd learned that it wasn't just eat a broccoli, do a spin class and work 20 hours a day. I'd learned to like take weekends off. I'd put in really important structures to pace myself physically. And I would still get this 
deep clench in your solar plexus and like it got to the point where I was so ignorant of all the signs like I think I'm a relatively intelligent person but there are like so many times in my life where my own body has been like and I'm like what is even happening I feel so good (laughs) and probably because you were busy you speak about this in the book you know we can keep ourselves busy yeah and so we we don't realize what's happening like adrenaline makes you feel really good in the moment you think that you've got a lot of energy but what it was for me is that I had started to do a lot of podcasts and speaking gigs and events and fun things like yoga classes to launch a studio and I think it was like rest because it was a yoga class but I'd be like okay I stock matcha made in here I've got a visual merchandise all the packets over there and like I was still on and I never gave my brain off time I'd be lying down resting but I'd be like listening to a finance podcast or something and my body was just like, you are not listening. You've worked out the physical side, but your brain is burning out. And it took me, I had a panic attack one night and I'd been having them and not knowing what they were because I also think it's a misnomer. I think people who haven't had them think panic attack means like, I just freak out. Like you get really overwhelmed and you just sit down. I literally cannot breathe. My throat closes, my arms go numb. I was having such heart palpitations that we called an ambulance and it was so like they said to me so you've just had a panic attack it's all right I was like you're wrong I'm actually dying like if you leave and you don't take me in your ambulance with you I'm actually just gonna die here because the physical and I know this too the physical effects are so so loud so severe like it's just and it is what like you wrote really debilitating I think because you expect anxiety to mean just anxious emotions Mm-mm, this is not anxiety. This is something much I mean, more, you're a paramedic, you have training, but I still think you're wrong. <laughs> but that it took that to think I have literally created with my brain, not even my body, a situation where I feel so bad that I would call an ambulance. And after that, it took me another, like I reckon another two years to figure out how to work alongside my brain so that I could get the most out of it, but still give it enough space to rest and rest independently of physical rest. And that's where I realized I need to meditate religiously, which sounded so woo-woo at the time, but now there's a lot of scientific research that's come out about the fact that it changes your neural pathways. And if I don't do it twice a day, I get far too excited by the momentum of adrenaline. I just, my brain will just go off into a weird tangent. So I have to like force it twice a day, 20 minutes, and then no device time and play, which is why this play TA concept has become such a big deal for me because it's the only way to manage heart palpitations and numb arms and like a feeling of resistance. That's like you get in the fetal position and you can't read an email. It's just too much for your brain. So I have to preemptively every Sunday, I have a day that's called sloth Sunday. And if I don't call it something, I won't do it because I'll go and, oh, I think I need to like working be the entire house and like build something. But it's a day where I have to move as little as possible. I can only read books that are fiction. I can't listen to anything that's like progress, business. I try and win at resting. Like I get even a type about resting. (laughs) It has to be activities like puzzles that like have an end goal, but don't like at the end of a puzzle, you finish the puzzle. And then you I'm actually it? so keen to do some puzzles. I'm like, you know what? I think I'm going to order myself some puzzles because it's engaging me, but it's also I'm not trying to better myself and, and learn and, and grow my business. It's just something I can do that will engage me and feel good. It's a self-betterment thing, I think. It's that our careers are so focused on anything we see as an idea. 
or a way that we can incorporate that into like bettering other people's lives. And there's so much literature and podcasts and stuff that I go for a walk with the dog and think, I oh, like, this is probably downtime, but I'd be listening to like Brene Brown, like pumping me up about, you know, and then I'd be <laughs> yes. right taking notes and stuff. And I realized like my anxiety is something I live alongside and that I have to be really strict about the way I live my life to manage it. And I always get it wrong. Like last week had a few days where I just completely couldn't do anything. And it's very humbling. I try and see it as something that if you have a brain that can experience anxiety, it also means that in, in its good form, you can experience the heights of other kinds of emotions and work at a you know crazy level. But I think it's something that you just learn to manage like anything. Like we all have something. Some people have physical afflictions. Some people, it's just learning that you have limits and putting those in place and appreciating that the one thing for me that helps is being okay with wasting time doing things that have no outcome. Cause that's the only time I let myself off the hook where I'm like, yes. I mean, at the end of a puzzle, you wreck the puzzle. Like that's how unproductive it is. <laughs> You put it back. Exactly. And then do you do them again? I don't because I'm very like, oh, I've ticked that box now. So I always have yep. to buy a new one. Like, so this is so embarrassing. There's this one thing that I found. It's the only thing I let myself do on my phone. Normally on a Sunday, I don't, I'm not on my phone at all. And this is stupid. It is so stupid. I'm not a gamer at all. <laughs> I'm so but it's called <laughs> Toy Story Drop. And it's like. What's the jewel one? Oh, Candy Crush. It's like Candy Crush, where you have to line oh, all the wow. kind of like you have to line the things up in a three and it like drops. But it's so ridiculous that because it's so mindless and because it's like such a waste of time, I forget what the time is, I forget my to-do list. It's so basic, but I can't redo a level. So I used to say to Nick all the time, how stupid are people who pay to get to the next level of online games, like pay actual money to get coins in the game when you could just wait, like you can wait 20 minutes and you get a new life. Because it's so important to my rest, I spend so much actual money on this stupid app because you can just play the old levels again. But to unlock the next ones, you have to pay. And Nick's like, just play the old ones again. I'm like, but I've, I've done played that. that. I've done that. I'm ready for the next one. <laughs> I need the next scene. So I'm at like scene 17 and there's like 80 levels in each scene. This is a whole new world to me. I, I haven't to told anyone this, this ever. <laughs> <laughs> Your secret little closet Sunday activities, Sarah. I don't know how we got onto it either. Like when neither of us watch Toy Story, we don't have kids. Like there's no reason why we would have found this out. But we both were just like the end of the day we're like okay work's done let's just like decompress with some toy story and we'll just sit next to each other it's so weird but it works you both play it too oh both play it yeah but nick won't spend actual money (laughs) so he's way behind you he's way behind but he's like but am i i think financially i'm ahead i'm like but are you because i've invested in my future so (laughs) (laughs) oh sarah it's been such fun and just so 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 great to speak with you today just loved your book seize the yay so everyone should go ahead and get that where can everyone find you follow you tune into your podcast share all the details oh gosh well other than sundays i live on the internet so you can kind of find me everywhere <laughs> i think spoonful of sarah is probably the easiest place because everything else the podcast the book everything's linked there well sarah thank you so much for joining me i can't wait to see you meet you in person next friday at ignite the dream in melbourne although when i say next friday by the time this comes out it the event will have been and i'm sure it will have been a huge 
amazing success. But thank you so much for spending time with me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me and for reading the book and absorbing it so deeply. It just, like, it. it means, it, honestly, I can't even tell you, it means so much. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Speak soon. This episode is brought to you by my free online masterclass, Why Your Marketing Is Not Making You Sales. I'm going to share with you what to do about it and the three biggest mistakes that I made when I was starting out with my marketing that I've kind of learned and it saved me a whole lot of time and maybe a lot more results now. The shifts you need to make to turn your audience into the raving customers that you know you can support and serve and why consistency isn't the answer to making more sales and what is. Go to emilyosmond.com forward slash free and get your name down. I would love to share this free masterclass with you. And it's going to be an educational and fun experience. That's emilyosmond.com forward slash free. And I'll see you there. Thank you for listening to The Emily Osmond Show, brought to you by my Instagram freebies, which you'll find at emilyosmond.com forward slash free. So please take a few seconds to leave me a review, subscribe so that you don't miss an episode, and be sure to take a screenshot of this podcast, upload it to your social media, and tag me at Emily Osmond so I can give you a shout out too. Until next time, remember connection over perfection. You've got this and we'll speak soon.